You're listening to the Christian Post Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Showalter. Lies about marriage are rampant in our culture. They're also rampant in the church, and they're destroying marriages. But yet, corresponding truths can bolster marriages and salvage even the most strained of relationships. My guests today, authors Greg Smalley and Robert Paul, have identified these lies, and they've explained how they've worked to undermine marriages with the aim of restoring them, marriages that are on the rocks, healing them. Their book, Nine Lies That Will Destroy Your Marriage, features several self-tests to help couples assess the extent to which their relationship has been affected by each of these nefarious lies. And I'm so happy that they are joining me today. Gentlemen, welcome to the CP Podcast. It's so great to have you. Hey, thanks, Brandon. Yeah, Brandon, it's great to be here. We're excited about this. Well, it's really great to have you here. And uh, just when I think I'm a young man who's not yet married and would like to be one day, I, when I think about all of the cultural messages that I have just sort of learned by osmosis, maybe it's Disney movies growing up. I don't. I didn't watch so much Disney, but you know, there's there there are so many popular, you know, messages about lifelong love and everlasting love and for happily ever after movies and all the kinds of things that inform how many people think of marriage and a lot of those things are contributing factors to untrue things that people just sort of believe about marriage. And certainly as um, followers of Jesus, we want, you know, our marriages to reflect godliness and lifelong love to be achieved. But if we could just start us off, what are the nine lies? Just sort of list all of them out and then we'll, we'll explore a few. Greg, you want to take that? Yeah. So one is, and they lived happily ever after. So it's the, the, the lie is, is that marriage is about being happy and figuring out um, how we can be happy. Um, there's another lie that we hear a lot, which is one plus one equals one. Think of the unity candle that mm-hmm. couples who have that in their ceremony kind of blow out the two individual candles after they they light the, the first ca- or the one candle in almost implying that now we're no longer individuals, but, but now the, the marriage is the priority. We're one. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, a lot of couples buy into this idea that all you need is love. And it's, it's this feeling, it's this decision that we make. Um, and, and that's, that's really all we need. If, as long as we have love, we have everything to make a marriage work. And then uh, another one is that really it's around sacrifice. And, of course, we're taught that in the Bible that we need to sacrifice. But really what we see is that, that people buy into this idea that I'm a sacrifice who I am for the sake of the marriage. So those are the first four. I'll let Bob share some of them as well. Yeah, another one, uh, the fifth one that we talk about is the idea that you must meet each other's needs and the issue here is really about misplaced responsibilities. You know, who's really responsible for what? And uh, uh, we get a lot of ideas that once we get married, we're supposed to be responsible to identify and meet our spouse's needs. And we see all sorts of challenges, both scripturally and in reality and practical terms on, on how that can't work. Uh, the sixth one we talk about is that our differences are irreconcilable. You know, there's really no um, more commonly cited cause uh, or item identified as the cause of divorce than, than irreconcilable differences. And yet we want to point out here how much differences were created by God on purpose, with purpose, and that they really are meant to be a source of blessing and a source of benefit to both ourselves and to each other. 
um, not actually the source of the problem in marriage. Uh, the seventh one we talk about is um, I'm going to make you love me. And really that the title uh, doesn't quite get at what we're getting at under there, which is that sadly very few people have taken the time to really identify how centrally important feeling safe and secure is and that love and commitment is all you need. And if you've got that, you're there, but that there's this feeling that this central importance of making sure each of us feels safe physically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally. Then we talk in the last two chapters, we're dealing with one, your love is driving me crazy, which is just this idea that feelings are really uh, out of control. Feelings are the source of huge problems for many people. And we talk about the importance of feelings as they were designed by God and how to actually talk safely using a technique we call heart talk to actually communicate carefully and safely about one another's feelings and um, making everybody feel as if their feelings matter. And the last one is you win some and you lose some. And the idea there is that um, conflict is something that is certainly common in marriage, but that you're just going to have to accept that, you know, it all comes out in the wash. You win some, you lose some. And the reality is, is that marriage is a team sport. And there really is never a loser in a marriage because if anybody loses, everybody loses. Mm. And if you make that acceptable, as opposed to a no losers policy, which we teach, which is to make sure everybody feels good about what's going on, you're set up to fail. So that's, that's the nine lies that we, wow. that we identify. We go into great detail about each of them to help people see where the truth is and where the lie actually, the insidious lie is, and then how to overcome it. So where do these lies all come from? How have they emerged so strongly that this is what one or however many of these that people believe? I mean, it didn't happen in a vacuum. What do you find have been the sort of the root? Uh, you know, where where'd they come from? What's the origin? Yeah, you know, part part of it is just you know our media, movies, television take that first lie that, and they lived happily ever after. You know, Brandon, I can't count the number of times I'm watching a movie, a TV show where the parents are saying something like this. You know, I just I just want my kids to be happy. Um, I I think that kids hear that so much because parents want that for them so badly that they walk that idea that really the goal in life, especially in marriage, is 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 happiness, which which is so difficult because, I mean, if happiness is the goal, what do you do when you're not happy? Well, then it right. must mean there's something wrong with me, with you, with our marriage. I need to go find someone who really will make me happy versus what, what Bob and I really believe in is that the, the goal was never about happiness in a marriage. It's really what I want for my kids. I want them to understand that marriage is about being on this amazing, grand adventure together. And and when we're on this adventure, there's going to be the good, the bad, the ugly. There's going to be the highs and the lows. And, and it's all a part of the adventure. And we want to embrace every part of it. And we just want to keep growing together. So that's why I tell my kids that, you know, I don't, I don't want you happy. I want you growing, growing more like God growing more as a husband, as a spouse. And if you're doing that, I think then you are successful in your marriage. And Brandon, we're not anti-happy. I mean, we, we really uh, both like yeah. happy money. We, I yeah, hate happy, want... Bob. <laughs> 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 I know you better than that. The reality is 
we just we just want to be clear that we're focused on the right things because you know truthfully Brandon one of the things that we see so so insidiously at work because we work with, with with thousands of couples over the over the last twenty plus years in the work that we do and we've been watching how um, really the enemy of our marriage is the evil one right and and there is a way in which these lies have infiltrated our culture they have infiltrated even in some ways the church. Because he knows that if he can get us believing, oftentimes it's half-truths, that it sets us up to fail, and that's his purposes for us to be destroyed, for our relationships and our families to be destroyed. So it's, it's interesting to see how much these, these lies or half-truths have infiltrated many of our belief systems over time. And Brandon, it makes me think about when I was engaged. So, so I've been married 20 years. This is many years ago. I'll never forget, I received one of those sweepstake, you know, winning envelopes in the mail that said that I had definitely won one of these amazing prizes. And and it was serious stuff. Like it was like 20 grand. It was a new car. It was, it was so worded, just perfect that I'm not an idiot. And I fell for it. I was, I remember calling up Aaron. So at the time she was my fiance telling her, you were never going to believe you are marrying a really now rich man. We're either going to have a new car. We're going to have, you know, 50 grand in cash. And, and I was so convinced because of how it was just so carefully worded. And, and of course I was wrong. I didn't win anything, but in so many ways, that's what we're up against. As Bob said, these are half-truths. They're so cleverly yeah. disguised and written that we buy into them, and then we try to make them work, and they don't work on any level, which only leads us to frustration, wondering, well, maybe I just married the wrong person. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you now um, about one of the other lies that you mentioned, uh, specifically the one plus one equals one, and I— Someone, one of you said how these, you know, half-truths operate so insidiously, and, you know, it's absolutely scriptural that the two shall become one. You know, we see there is the, the one-flesh union that happens within marriage, and so that principle is there. And yet, it, it then sort of expands out into this very false notion that somehow the individuality of each person somehow is diminished just by being married, or, and that's just not true. Uh, can you explore a little bit more, elaborate a little bit more on how it is that people have come to believe that just by virtue of tying the knot, there's they aren't their own person anymore? Well, you know, uh, the the way that it's portrayed, it's it's so subtle. And part of the problem is a translation issue from the original language of Scripture into English, because as you know, we all know that there are certain words that have multiple meanings. Right. Uh, the word one is one of those. And what we realize as we really look into the meaning of the word, because certainly the two, <clears throat> excuse me, the two becoming one is true. We are supposed to be one, but it's not the number one mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that, you know, because I look at couples all the time and, you know, and I, and I basically say to them, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the two of you. And if the goal is to become one, you as a couple are a failure because I still see two. Yeah. And it's yeah. really not meant to be seen as one because the then you right. immediately... Yeah. Yeah, you're immediately at odds with differences. Right. Your right. differences now become the problem. 
And the differences were created intentionally. Mm-hmm. You are, you know, God's economy is always something that expands. When things combine together, they become more, mm-hmm. never less. Right. So for the two to become one, that's reductionistic. That can't be true of God. I mean, the be- most beautiful symbol of that is when a husband and wife come together and they procreate and the two become three. Mm-hmm. That's how God's economy works. So what we want people to understand is the meaning of Scripture is that you become one in spirit and purpose. You become in unity. And it's all about unity, not about sameness and not about reducing the two of you into one. And that's why the unity candle is a problem, because when people blow out the individual candles, it suggests that the two somehow have to be ignored. And now it's all about the relationship. And we are absolutely convinced that that is not true to God's heart and his intent for marriage. Beautifully and said. It really, yeah, so it, it's it's not about sameness, and and that's what I love what Bob is saying that there what what we know is true in a marriage that there's three things that we have to pay attention to, and that's that's both individuals and the marriage relationship, and so you know if 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 I'm thinking that oneness is about the number and that we're forgetting the individuals. Man, then I'm neglecting me. I'm neglecting probably what's been placed deep within Aaron's heart, callings, longings that she has, and all I'm focused on is our marriage relationship. And that's why we just tell, we encourage couples, you know, you, your spouse, and the marriage all have to matter the the same, and and it's of all three are of of, of equal importance. Well, explain more then on another lie that you mentioned there as you were beginning to, as you were listing them off there at the beginning about difference being a good thing. Because I think that is so, I mean, obviously people know that men and women are different and that each, you know, each person brings something different to the table, but differences often become the source of uh, great conflict and yet they can be great blessings. Elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, I think definitely people... Um, mistake that and believe that somehow the problem in my marriage is that we're different. And that's why you see often cited on a divorce decree is irreconcilable right. differences. And, and Bob and I believe this is not true. Differences are never the problem. Differences are the beauty. Differences are the spice of a relationship that God's given. He's, he's created us different on purpose with purpose. And so we, when we're working with couples, we're encouraging them to understand that it's your differences are never the problem. It's how you choose to manage those differences. And you know, when when Aaron and I were very young married, so within the first couple of t- years, we had we struggled so much. And and for example, she's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. That's a beautiful difference between us. But early in our marriage, man, I. Like the, I would get so overwhelmed and tell her, can we not have one night that someone is not invited to our house? And she would look at me like I was crazy. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, what's wrong with you? Why, why, why are you against people? And, and we allowed that, that beautiful difference between us to, to become like, we thought that was the problem. Well, if you just weren't so introverted, well, if you just weren't so extroverted versus really learning okay so so how do we manage through those differences how do we figure out okay what what would a a win-win look like how many nights should we have people over and how many nights should 
should be free. And it, and it really began to change the way that we dealt with conflict when we stopped focusing on how we were different, recognizing that's a valuable part of who we are and started going, okay, so how do we work through this in a way that feels good to both of us? Hey, Brandon, I can give you a simple uh, word picture that a lot of people will be able to connect to. Um, I know that I'm, I'm big on sports and I love team sports. And so I've followed a lot of teams. I've watched a lot of great teams. And what I've noticed is that if you're playing team sports and you're all, you're all working together and pulling toward a common goal, but if everybody on that team had the exact same skill set and the exact same weaknesses, that would not be a strong team. Great teams are made up of players that have a variety of different skills, different strengths and different weaknesses. And great teams are one that play to each other's strengths. You encourage each other to use their strengths and you work together to cover each other's weaknesses. And that's when a team is functioning at its best. That's what makes a team great. So our marriage is stronger because my wife and I, Jenny and I are incredibly different from each other, just like Aaron and Greg are. And we have learned that we each bring strengths and we each bring weaknesses. And we are clear about identifying what those strengths are in each of us and making sure we play to those and we encourage those. And then we also know where our weaknesses are. And we work hard to cover those and give each other space to learn and grow as God works with us to become more the men and women that God created us to be. Yeah, it's just so well said. I'd love for you all to both now talk about sort of the marriage healing ministry that you all have and just the practic- the practice of that, because I think it's fair to say, and I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer here, but it really is, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a moral and social crisis to see so much family breakdown. I mean, we, I lament more than anything, just how many divorces happen and just relational breakdown that that happens among couples and the dysfunction that just causes so many other social pathologies and whatnot. What do you think is the greatest thing impeding healthy, lasting marriages from happening in the contemporary West, especially the United States? And how are you all, you know, actively working to heal that, that great social pain? Well, you know, um, we have had a ministry for over 20 years that we started and really didn't intend it to become what it's become, but it's um, a ministry to couples that are in crisis. And, you know, they come to us, Brandon, hurting. They come to us at the end of the rope. Most of the people we work with are hanging by a thread. And truthfully, many of them have, uh, have their divorce papers already drawn, and they're basically coming to us um, as a last resort. Matter of fact, there's only one question that a couple needs to answer yes to for us to be willing to work with them. And the question is this. If God was to work a miracle in your marriage, would you accept it? Hmm. Doesn't mean that you have to believe it's possible even, or that you would have to be excited about it. But if a miracle did occur, and we define a great marriage as a relationship that both people are thrilled with and thrilled with the direction that, that it's headed. So that's what, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a miracle, a relationship that both of you love and both of you feel great about and how it's, where it's going. That's what we're asking people to say yes to. So they come and, you know, we don't do miracles. We've got a great team of people that focus on the family that are very skilled, very experienced therapists, but none of us are miracle workers. We just happen to know that we serve a God who is committed to marriage and does do miracles. And if we can help people identify the obstacles that they have 
more often than not inadvertently placed in his way between them and him, mm. and then maybe move those aside if they choose to do so and they see it. We see God swoop in consistently because we have one of the highest success rates I know of in the world, and we've worked with close to 8,000 couples wow. from every state in the United States, and at the last count, over 30 foreign countries. They come from all over the world, and we see miracles occur regularly. Why? Because God is devoted to marriage, and he is devoted to his family being successful and effective. And if we can just figure out how to allow him to have his way with us, he takes us there miraculously. We sit back and marvel at what we see him doing, and it's really God's commitment to the institution of marriage as the cornerstone of his economy, the cornerstone of the family, the cornerstone of the body that we see this work. And we, again, we marvel at God's commitment. Mm. And Brandon, I've seen, you know, and heard so many couples somehow in our culture have sort of shifted a, a definition of success for marriage is almost like just surviving, you know, that we just survive for however many years. It's kind of like, well, what's Smith, that born out of? What, what, what is, what is that born out of? Why, why do you think people have reduced it to such a low standard? I, I think it's what they're seeing. I mm. think years and years and years of people just sort of buying into that, that we can invest in so many other things and just hope that our marriage stays together. When our kids leave, then we'll get involved in, in, in doing something together or we'll work on our marriage at that point in time. I just think that the divorce rate, I mean, all that is just added up to sort of this acceptance that we really can't have this amazing marriage. Really what we can just sort of get by. And, and Will Smith and his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, man, they, they caused a stir when they used a, a, a line in describing their marriage from one of Will Smith's movies, Bad Boys, where it says, well, we ride together, we die together, you know, bad boys for life. Well, they changed it to bad marriages for life. Simply trying to say that we're in this together, people almost thought what they were saying was that, yeah, they're just going to exist together in this bad marriage. And, and that's not what they were saying. But it just fits with what sort of people describe as success. And, and that's why Bob and I wanted to write this book to go, man, that marriage of your dream, the one to where you're moving in a direction that you're both thrilled with, that is so possible. It's just understanding some of these lies that we've bought into and how to, how to remove those and replace it with, with a different way of relating and like Bob said, we've seen this with over 8,000 couples, and we're so thrilled for people to begin to understand these lies they've bought into and, and how do they do this differently so that they can have a marriage that they're thrilled with, not just one they're putting up with. And, and Brandon, just to add to that, because I love what Greg's saying, just to add to that, we are convinced that we hold a key to the secret, if you will, not us, but but uh, uh, those of us that are Christians, that God has made it clear that he is the key, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. for us to produce a testament to who he is and what's possible for him, both personally and relationally, we better be living it. We better be living the abundance. Uh, Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he came, that we, all of us, would have life more abundantly, life to the full. He doesn't want us to exist in second rate or 
or pathetic, miserable relationships as if that brings some glory to God. He wants our relationships. He wants our family. He wants us as individuals to be thriving. And we need to uncover the secrets that make it possible for us to thrive in him. Now we've got a testimony that actually makes a difference that people sit up and take note of. Well, I I love that. And it is, uh, I think it's the heart of many, if not most, all sincere Christians I know is to see their marriages uh, glorify God and the marriage being an icon of God's love and that ultimately serving as a vehicle to point people to him. Ultimately, I think that's, it's just such a, it's a sign of his love. So we are decades in from, you know, the chaos of the sexual revolution and, you know, relationships have collapsed and, you know, I'm, I'm frequently conversing with, you know, thinkers who are analyzing the culture and give, they're giving their takes on sort of the state of relationships and family marriage and all that. And one of the things that I'm seeing is that there are young people today who they're burnt out on pornography. They're so tired of seeing their parents' marriages collapse. They see that there's a wasteland all around them. They're, they see all, all sorts of sexual chaos, and yet that there is this, I, I still see this aspiration, this deep, deep hunger for lifelong love and for marriage. They, they, it, it's still it's still there. Um, and yet I think they're so afraid and so discouraged. And we mentioned earlier that people's expectations have been lowered so much that they just expect to sort of survive and muddle through. Could the both of you give some advice to young people who are very much marriage-minded, Christians and not, what can they do to prepare? And how can they really drill down and build a structure within themselves to resolve to to get this right and to, and to build a future marriage? Yeah, I would say that your parents' marriage is not yours, and that's the good news, that you get to choose what's your marriage is going to be. And I know it's discouraging when we look around and we see all these people divorcing, we see the attack on marriage, we get all that. But that that's not your story. You're writing your story. And all that means is that you get to choose what goes into the pages of your marriage story. So be intentional. Boy, get be committed to growing as an individual and within your marriage. Invest in your marriage. But I tell you, you can't do marriage on your own. This has to be done within community, that, that marriage was, is never meant to be a, a, just, just you and your spouse. It, it takes a village. It takes a community. And so I would encourage people, find, find that couple that you look up to that's been married 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And just start spending a whole lot of time with them, asking what did they do? How did they handle this? In, in, because, again, you are totally in charge of what your marriage story is going to be, and that's the great news. You get to write it however you want it to look. And I would piggyback on that, Brandon, and say, I mean, as you know, that is the reason that we wrote the Nine Lives book, because uh, we would encourage everybody to be on the lookout. There are half-truths and lies that are being sold to us in the guise of truth constantly. And they're usually being presented by people that are well-meaning, that are trying to help us, and they don't even realize that they're actually saying something, they're teaching us something that's contrary to God's design, so it can't work. So when, as Greg said earlier in this half hour, 
that when when we try to utilize these these um, principles that we've learned that can't work and we don't know it and we think they should and they don't work, we will naturally assume there's something wrong with me or I got a defective spouse when it's not that at all, when we're believing a lie and we're trying to use strategies that are set up to fail. So be on the lookout. Watch for the things that really are presented in a nice package, but actually set you up to fail so that you can be alert, you can be awakened, and you can be set up by contrast to succeed and succeed greatly. Because one of the things that Greg's leadership at the, as the, the champion of marriage at Focus on the Family has, has helped us all to see is Hebrews 13 forces marriage should be honored by all. And that we have the ability to create marriages that are worthy of respect, worthy of honor, worthy of praise. The kind of relationships we would all long for and aspire toward. And that's what we want to see for everybody that's a believer. That we have those kind of marriages that can be a light to the world that is longing, as you said, Brandon, for that long-lasting, sustainable, satisfying love relationship.